0: On August 23rd, 1973, Jan Erik Olsen burst into the credit banking in Stockholm, Sweden. Firing his weapon in the air, he screamed, the party has just begun. On the hollow end of that gun, four young bank tellers crowded into the bank vault. They'd spend the next six days as hostages. In many ways, this was a normal standoff. Was a negotiation and demands. The police drilled to peer into the vault. There was gunfire and death threats and screams. But something unusual happened as well. One hostage, Kristen Enmark, got on the phone with police saying, quote, I am very disappointed in you. I think you are sitting here playing games with our lives. You see, Kristen and others tended to feel a sympathy for the bad guys. They grew comfortable, a bond formed with their captors. And after trial, or excuse me, at trial, after the event... Rather than testify against them, they raised money for the defense. They had grown comfortable with the captors. Now, we're going to talk more about this later, but right now I want to go over to Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47. The text this morning concerns the persecution of our Lord Jesus Christ, captors, Sees our Lord. And he's going to pay a price because he refuses to make peace with them. Now, in a, wor- in a word, what our Lord experienced is something called persecution. A persecution is the infliction of suffering or injury or even death upon someone for their identity or their beliefs. And in his final meal, Jesus made a promise. John 15, verse 20 A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, Christians will receive persecution wherever they are. That's the realized promise of Jesus. And for you and I here in America, we're not going to experience the worst kinds of persecution. We praise God for that. We don't experience death or imprisonment or, or torture for our faith in Jesus. I'd say here in the West, it's not as widespread or, or as quite as intense as other parts of the world. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It could be the social media comment. Or perhaps it's the child taking flack for his or her belief in school. It could be an employee passed over for promotion. And you and I sense, too, that there's a wind of change that blows in our air. Things are changing. There's a sense that things are on the decline. And we know then that as the society descends, as she drips or she drifts untethered away from a biblical morality, As a culture grows intolerant of the Lord and His Word, as the culture declines, the persecution of Christians expands. So what do we do when we're persecuted? What happens when we feel the fire? How do we manage? Well, this morning I want to explore four realities of persecution And we're going to see them in Matthew chapter 26. They come through the the betrayal, the arrest, and the interrogation of the Lord Jesus. As we work through this narrative, we'll drop anchor at a few places. We'll pull some application out to answer our questions on persecution. I want to begin in verse 47 with the betrayal of Jesus. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. They came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Well, Judas has reentered this scene, this scene in Gethsemane. And remember from last week, Jesus had been praying in the garden. Jesus had been bearing his soul to God in this olive garden. His three closest friends, those he's relied upon, they are found sleeping. And then, in the pale of this great moonlight, a large mob appears. I want to describe this group to you by by putting together all four gospel accounts. In this group were the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is called the Council of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish governing body. These are the ones who sought to seize Jesus by stealth. Their hope was to kill him, yet without arousing the anger of the people. Luke chapter 22 reveals that Satan had entered Judas, and it's at that point that he had gone off to cast this dastardly deed with them. Secondly, in this group, was the Roman cohort. A cohort just another word for a detachment of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers. The Roman cohort of John chapter 18, verse 12, was a total of 600 men at full strength. We're not sure if they were all together in this scene, but at least some number of Roman soldiers came along. In this group, too, were the temple police. This would be the armed division of temple servants. They would be the muscle that represented Jewish interests within the temple. So our throng of thugs that fateful night came out with torches and and lanterns and weapons. The temple police carried their standard wooden club, and the Roman soldiers carried their notorious gladius short sword. You see, they take no chances. They will not miss Jesus tonight. You see, if you miss him, if he gets away tonight, he is back in the wind again. He's elusive He's a somewhat mysterious guy to catch. After all, this is Jesus. His heel teetering on the edge of the cliff, the enraged people of Nazareth are ready to throw him off. What happened? But passing through their midst, he went his way. This is Jesus, who is preaching a oneness with God. He's <laughs> preaching it to a group of Jewish leaders angry hands holding cold, heavy rocks. They have him cornered. They were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. You see, no way will Jesus walk off this time. And Judas, one of the twelve, Judas led the pack. Matthew described him there as one of the twelve. That makes this all the more atrocious and, and vicious, doesn't it? Now, not all in the group had seen Jesus before. Remember, it was dark outside. They're looking for a a 30-year-old Jewish man. There were probably a number of them. How are they going to know who to seize? Judas tells them, whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. In your English Bibles, you'll see the word kiss in verse 48 and the word kiss again in verse 49. In the Greek, these two words are different. The second word in verse 49 is really built off of verse 48. It's a compound word, and it represents more of an emphatic, more of a showy display of affection. This is something like a kiss with an embrace. It would be very clear who Jesus is. In fact, that same word is used of the father's reception of the prodigal son. If you can imagine that reunion, this is Judas's greeting to Jesus. Well, the mob dutifully takes their cue. They seize Jesus. And it's here that I want to stop and pause for our first point of application this morning. I want you to see that persecution is the reality for the Christian. And persecution is the reality for the Christian. Persecution found Jesus. It found him throughout his entire ministry. Here it's in the dark of an olive garden. In his hometown, by those who watched him grow up. It found him when he did good. When he freed the demoniac. When he cast out the demon. The people asked him to leave the region see, persecution believer, it's going to find you. You will never need to plan it. You don't need to look for it. You don't need to create it. No Christian has ever scheduled an appointment for persecution. No Christian has ever written it down on the personal planner. Persecution finds us. In fact, if we go about living for Jesus, it will find you. I should say it this way, when we go about living for Jesus, it will find us second timothy chapter 3 verse 12 all who desire to live a godly life in jesus christ will be persecuted that's because the godly talk different and the godly act different and the godly think different the godly possess different priorities and different affections, and different attitudes, and different habits, and different masters. And the flip side of that verse is just as true. All who do not desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will not be persecuted. I would say that this camouflage Christianity is really no only Christianity at all. That's just a creative way of saying deceived. Because you and I are not to hide our faith or to try to to keep it under wraps. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words, says Jesus, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. You see, I don't want you to think it's possible to live the Christian life and avoid persecution. That's not an option the Bible gives us. Remember what Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. And that's what I want to do in this first point this morning, is simply settle in our minds that that we'll be persecuted. We will suffer ridicule or, or, or something for our faith. We're going to build on this in a moment, but for now I want to see the arrest of Jesus. Turning back to our account in verse 51, the arrest of Jesus. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Those who had seized Jesus led him. Away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Well, things get messy here, don't they? In verse 51, we read of a slashing, a slashing conducted not by Roman guards, but by a disciple. Matthew does not share his identity with us. John is less hesitant. In his gospel, John shares who it is. You may know his identity. John records this slashing came by the hands of Peter. Peter has lopped off the ear of an assailant. We learn that it was a slave of the high priest. The priest's name is Caiaphas in verse 57. Presumably, this slave acted on behalf of Caiaphas. Maybe he was a representative or an ambassador with the mob. John tells us the name. His name was Malchus. No doubt, Peter missed his target. I assume he was aiming for his head. I don't know if he was still half asleep. Remember, he was sleeping just prior to this. He's certainly no samurai, for which Malchus is thankful Luke uses a word for the ear, which is interesting. It indicates it was probably only a portion of the ear. It's the little ear or the lobe of the ear. And I imagine all Peter's trying to do here is keep his word. What did he say? Verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But Jesus says this is not the way. This is not how we present the Christian faith. In fact, Luke's going to record that Jesus touches Malchus and he heals his ear. Jesus then has a word for Peter in verses 52 through 54. He wants him to learn, first of all, that peace does not come by the sword. This is completely out of character with the mission. It's out of character with the person and the work of Jesus. We know from the rest of the Bible it's out of character. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy. Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And a verse we love at this time of year, we love to read it. Oh, peace on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. But we need to understand that verse 52 is neither an argument for pacifism either. Pacifism being that uh, doctrine or that belief that we don't accomplish things through, through war or through conflict Jesus simply teaches here that violence begets violence. The response to a situation is going to impact other people's response to that situation. A reminder of that proverb over in chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's the same principle working here. Just as anger is going to produce more anger, violence will produce more violence. In fact, James Boyce has observed here that the use of the sword, it's it's not dangerous for Malchus, we saw that, it's dangerous for Peter, because those who are swung at have a nasty habit of swinging back. And Jesus knew that it's God's power that brings peace, and we picked up on that. He doesn't need to bother with Peter's bad aim. He speaks of a legion of angels that are present if he's so inclined to call upon them. If the term legion of verse 53 reversed to a a Roman unit of soldiers, the equation is something like 6,000 times 12. Simply a word from Jesus unleashes immense power. We also see in this passage that that peace is coming through a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus has emphasized this twice. In verse 54, His arrest allows prophecies to be fulfilled. And then again in verse 56, the prophets have predicted His suffering. And that brings us to a second anchor, a second point of application this morning. Persecution opens doors. Persecution opens doors. The persecution of Jesus is going to lead him where? It's going to lead him to the cross. Truly, 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 I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's a picture, a word picture or an image of the death of Jesus and how that has not been the end, but the cause of much more life and a greater spread. In fact, this spread's going to be a mission that's going to go from Jesus to the disciples all the way down to you and I in our day. The church will be born. We read of it in the book of Acts. Jesus passes the baton to Peter. He passes the baton to a man named Saul in Acts chapter 13. And persecution, where is it? It permeates the book. All through the book of Acts, the church is persecuted. One might argue that it's because of persecution the church spreads. Yes. Nothing spreads the gospel like persecution. And that means that for you and I, our task is hard. Listen to John Piper. Comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom cause a tremendous inertia in the church. He's saying they caused the church that stopped to remain stopped. The very things that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of both time and money in the cause of Jesus and his kingdom, they instead produce the exact opposite. Weakness and apathy and lethargy, and self-centeredness, and a preoccupation with security. He goes on, persecution can have harmful effects on the church, but prosperity, it seems, is even more devastating to the mission which God calls us. You see, the point is that we should be very weary of prosperity and excessive ease and comfort and affluence. And you and I should not be disheartened, but instead be filled with hope if we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You see, as I read him and as I speak this morning, I'm not arguing against prosperity and I'm not arguing against comfort, but I do need to ask, what is that doing to us? Have these things closed... The very doors that bring us a joy we rarely feel and new believers we rarely see. Persecution hurts. And that's why we don't chase it. But it also opens doors for the gospel that are otherwise sealed. And it's going to yield a fruit that is otherwise rare. The persecution of our Lord is just beginning. In verse 57, the mob takes Jesus before Caiaphas. We met him all the way back in verse 3. In that verse, he played host to a chief to a to excuse me, he played host to a group of chief priests and elders. Verse 4, they plotted together to seize Jesus, to kill him. And don't be fooled by his title high priest. Remember, we observed he's more of a mafia don than he is a religious leader. We also read here this morning that Peter is, is still with Jesus. He's following along. He follows Jesus in. No doubt he's trying to keep that promise. Jesus, I will never fall away. Over in John chapter 18, verse 15, we learn that another disciple was with Peter. Presumably that's John. And John or John's family knew Caiaphas. He was able to speak to the doorkeeper and get Peter in. But here I want to pause just one more time and make a third point of application. I want to drop another anchor and I want you to see this morning that persecution can cause isolation. Persecution can cause isolation. From here on out, from now until the cross, our Lord is on His own. He's going to endure trials and beatings and death. He's going to do all of this alone. And you and I need to realize this morning that there may be times in the Christian life where we endure persecution alone. And I want to address in particular young people with us here this morning. If you decide to one day grow up and follow Jesus and you want to be a Christian, there's going to be a time where you have to stand on your own where you come out from underneath the the, the shadow or the approval of mom or of dad. And there's a time where we say that your faith must become your own. And part of that is not going to feel good. Part of that's going to be persecution, where you're going to be taking flack for your faith, where people will maybe make fun of you or, or belittle you because you believe in Jesus. And it may be that you... Don't go with what other people are doing, or you disagree, or, or even argue back against their beliefs. And in those moments, praise God. That's a good thing. The Bible tells us that Jesus is proud of you. He delights in you. Blessed are you, when people insult you, and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, says Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's a great verse for all of us. And I realized for others too this morning that with Christmas coming, you're going to find yourself in a tough spot. Because you know if you just remain quiet, you'll be able to get through the day with that relationship intact. But you know too that if you speak up, there might be persecution. Someone might get offended. You need to pray and discern God's will. There may be persecution. There may be isolation. But for all of us, wherever we are, young or old, we need to realize that we are probably not as alone. Let me check that. We are definitely not as alone as we might think. Other Christians throughout the world experience these things that we do. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And God is with us. He never wastes a persecution. He is always working out good. After you have suffered for a little while, Peter writes, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. That verse teaches us that persecution is temporary. And then, restoration. God makes things right. Then, confirmation. We are firmly fixed. Then, we are strengthened. Notice, we are not weaker as a result, but we are stronger. And then, we're established. Our foundation is secure. Our Lord is about to endure a series of trials When you put all the Gospels together and you add them up, you get six. Six different trials our Lord will experience. Three of these are going to be religious trials, and three of these we would call civil trials. Jesus is going to go before Annas. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He's a former high priest. He's then going to go before Caiaphas That's our account today. He's then going to go before the Sanhedrin council. That's Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2. Or the civil side, and again, the Jewish people need Rome to see this thing through. It's how they can bring about a death. They themselves were not allowed to perform capital punishment. Jesus will go before a man named Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor. He'll go before a man named. Herod Antipas, he's the one who killed John the Baptist earlier in Matthew's Gospel. He'll then go before Pilate again. But for now, Matthew wants to share with us the trial of Caiaphas. Verse 59 is his interrogation. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Isn't there something particularly frustrating about unjust courts? When the very systems of justice put in place to be right and fair when they themselves are crooked. when we expect a, a crookedness from certain segments of society, but, but, but the courts Jesus received one of these unjust courts. The proceedings here are highly irregular. The trials were to be conducted in the temple. Not the high priest's living room. The act of blasphemy for which he was accused actually never occurred, though he was charged with it. Trials were not to be held at night or during festivals. It is both nighttime during a festival. Capital cases, cases of death, required two days minimum to be tried. And Jesus did not even receive defense counsel. Matthew spotlights, spotlights, he zooms in on the issue of witnesses. In verse 59, the prosecution sought false testimony through verse 60, false witnesses. It appears as though they went through quite a few different ones before they landed on two who could, quote, work. I wonder who these were who didn't make the cut. Maybe it was those pig herders out in the garrisons. He cast our pigs over a cliff. No. It could have been the citizens of Nazareth. He implied that God loves Gentiles rather than Jews. That won't work. Maybe it was the rich young ruler. He told me I had to change to follow God. You do. It seems as though the two that they found weren't much better. I am able to destroy the temple of God, to rebuild it in three days, which is not what he said. This happened three years ago, by the way, at the beginning of his ministry. He said, destroy this temple back in John. He's speaking of his own body. But Caiaphas, he needs something, and he'll take it. And you notice that in this case, the judge is the prosecutor, and he's going to press the matter He's trying to get Jesus to answer, to say something about this. But Jesus remains silent. I imagine this really struck a chord with people. Wouldn't we expect someone who's innocent to come to their own defense and to try to express that innocence? And Caiaphas then, he gets to the heart of it. He asks what I call the question it's really designed to yield the answer that it does. It's a political question and a theological question. I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. See, it's theological. If Jesus is the Son of God, the Jews are going to have a meltdown. But it's also political. Because if Jesus is the Christ or the anointed one, that gets the Romans in a bind. Caesar alone is God. Jesus, he affirms it. He quotes Daniel 7. He quotes Psalm 110. He takes both of them and applies them to himself. And this sham trial, it explodes into fury. Caiaphas tears his clothes. The council screams death. And they begin t- to spit in his face and punch him and slap him. Luke 22, by the way, informs what's happening in verse 68. We learned there that they had blindfolded Jesus. And they're playing a sadistic game. They're mocking his prophetic ability. So, so they're hitting him, they're punching him, and trying to see, hey, can you prophesy who hit you? I want us to see fourthly this morning then persecution brings real adversity to our lives. Persecution brings real adversity to our lives. I'd say it's very unlikely that we're going to experience what Jesus did for our faith. But godly living, it, it will yield persecution. And anytime time we're persecuted, all persecution, it is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now, persecution, it it might feel weird. It's that strange combination of, of pain, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, whatever that may be, with some kind of deeply rooted joy. It's an odd combination. I I don't know if we can find it in other areas of our lives, but but that is what we see happening. And that's going to be hard for us because most of us, we want to be at peace with people. We want people to like us. We don't want to offend them. But persecution brings real adversity. It could could be a punch or, or a slap or maybe someone spits at us, but more likely it's going to yield some confusion. Why don't people... Just accept Jesus. It could yield disappointment. This isn't turning out the way I thought it would. I thought it'd be easier. It hurts. It might even yield anxiety. It's difficult to see how any of this turns out for good. Doesn't the Bible say that God works together all things for good? I don't see that. But persecution is a reality for all Christians. And it may cause isolation. That's possible. It will bring real adversity to our lives, but we know as well, ultimately, it's going to open doors for Jesus Christ. It's going to open doors for the gospel that have previously been sealed. In our opening this morning, we learned about a bank robbery in Stockholm. We saw there that after six days, the hostages seemed to grow comfortable with their captors. There's something about that captor, his name Olson. He waved a a loaded gun, yet at the same time he possessed a charisma, a winsomeness about himself. One reporter of the time says that Olson was a cross between Warren Beatty and Jesse James. And the captors and the captives, they, they formed a bond. Through those six days, they began to talk to one another on a first-name basis. Dubbed the Stockholm Syndrome, a hostage develops a bond with his or her captor. What would be a normal disdain turns into more of an empathy or, or a sympathy for the captor. And I fear the Church of the West suffers from a spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. See, the world around us has taken us captive, and it seeks to make us captive, and it tells us that if we affirm the right things, if we avoid the wrong topics, if we just keep silent and enjoy the comforts and the ease and the prosperity, if we sit in the vault and shut our mouths, you can live a nice, quiet, Christian life. No waves, no friction, no persecution. You and your Jesus can enjoy your time together in your church with your people over there. I fear that over time we come to like this. It's a good arrangement because there's something attractive about our captors, What they're asking isn't unreasonable. What they promise isn't too bad. There's something comfortable about this. Well, church, it's time to break the peace. It's time to love them enough to tell them the truth. It's time to love Him enough to suffer with Him. So do not fear and do not hide. He who delivered Christ will deliver you also. Persecution is for a moment, but reward is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we fear men. We don't want to offend. We don't want to create ripples. We love Jesus, but we Fear those who don't. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us today. That you would unsettle our hearts. That we would be careful not to make idols of comfort and security and peace. Oh, Lord, we don't want to look for a fight. We don't want to seek out persecution. But we don't want to neglect to walk in the footprints of our Lord Jesus either. And I pray for us today that you would give us a boldness, that you would give us a fresh take on what it means to be a Christian and to be bold as lions and courageous as Jesus. Place that burden on our hearts, Father. Give us opportunity to use it and give us grace to know when. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.